podcast one production. Hi, I'm Christopher Pine, and welcome to Pine Time. For years, I've been on the receiving end of a barrage of questions, some would say abuse, from the media and other politicians. But I've tried to keep it together, and hopefully I've had a successful career in politics. But now I'm out of the game, and I'm risking it all to step out of my comfort zone and embrace a new world of media, to turn the tables on my guests so you can hear for the first time stories that you've never heard before as they succumb to what some people are kindly describing as the pine effect. So listen now as I talk to comedian and TV personality Pete Hellyer. Pete Hellyer is a writer, a raconteur, a comedian who actually makes money out of comedy and surprisingly makes people laugh. I first met Pete looking down the barrel of a tube in Network 10 in Adelaide and his opening gambit was to tease me mercilessly, make me do a word pronunciation quiz, which, because of my Adelaide accent, the whole country thought was apparently tremendously amusing. Then I met him in real life uh, behind the back scenes of the project when I started doing the panel, the first politician to do the whole panel, which I've now done quite a few times, and we became fast friends, although perhaps not, because... A lot of people think you hate me, Pete, because you call me Christopher Pine. Christopher Pine. Uh, <laughs> thanks for having me. I call you my most unlikely friend. Is that right? Yes. Because I'm liberal or because no, I'm no, no, just ha- because charming? I, no, not, not because you're liberal at all, because I, 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 I'm not a political beast, to be honest. So I consider myself somewhere around a centre, probably centre-left, to be honest, but um, somewhere around a centre. Um, so not far, from, probably removed from your, your politics, but I just people wouldn't expect... Us to be friends, you know, uh, the former minister of defence and the uh, comedian who tells dick jokes for a living. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, like it's it's we're slightly the odd couple. Well, you humanised me. Well, it's funny because it's funny that people said that you know, like people weren't sure if I liked you, if I was taking the piss, and no. I, ne- I never, I don't think I ever try to come from a place of anger. I, I don't dislike many people, but I didn't take it badly. No, you didn't. You, but- you, you took it in the right spirit. Some people do, and then. You were the one who told me, actually, you think it's actually helping with your popularity. Oh, yeah, no doubt about it. I Which, mean, I'd be walking around the Adelaide Oval for a Crows game and people would be calling out, Christopher Pan <laughs> and giving me high fives and saying, you know, we love you on the project. And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, this is not going so badly, actually. <laughs> but then I wonder, because my wife thinks I miss social signals, because I think it's, I find it almost impossible to believe that people don't like me. So <laughs> I'll often say to Carolyn, that person, I, I got along really well with that person. And she'll say, you're joking, right? Because that person <laughs> clearly hates you. I said, what? What? I, said, no, I thought maybe I'd miss the social signal on Christopher Pine, but obviously not. No, no. I think when we first saw clips of you, when I first started seeing clips of you, you know, I thought, who is this, who is this Bond villain? This <laughs> yeah, Bond you know. villain. Who is this charming man? <laughs> you, well, you, are, you are charming. And I was, we were intrigued and we thought, let's have some fun here. And and then the pine thing started. How did you feel going into that room? Were you nervous? You know, I had a plan. You, you had a plan? Mm. I had a plan. I thought I will say very little mm. because um, I'm the guest and, you know, they'll be thinking he thinks that he knows everything. He's going to come in here and tell us what to do. So I thought I'll say virtually nothing. 
which right. lasted about 90 seconds. I, 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 don't remember, <laughs> I don't remember you saying nothing at all. I, I remember you, uh, you, you regaled the room with, with, with tales, and there were many things you said that we wish you had have said on, on air, to be honest. Yeah, that's right. That was the job. That was the job. I had to get but those all out of free. my system. I had, to get, I had to get them out of my wriggles before I got onto the set, or I would say it. Yeah. Like when I sang Fernando, because I thought it was just on... Like we weren't actually recording because I didn't understand the technology. That was a magical moment. So for those who hadn't seen it, you, we were rehearsing. In fact, I wasn't on that episode actually. So it was Waleed, Tommy, and Carrie, and and, and yourself. Yeah. And uh, it was during rehearsal, and there's a lot of waiting around, mm. and you decided to sing Fernando <laughs> while it was playing, and, and and forgetting, even though we were rehearsing, that they have the ability to obviously record any of this stuff. So and you sweetly played it on the Christmas show. Yes, they wanted to play it. I wanted to play it really quickly. Like as soon as I saw it, they showed it to me like the week later. I said, "Let's let's play this tonight," and they said, "No, we wanted to like produce it up a bit. We might play it for the Christmas show. It'd be <laughs> too late by then. Play it now." But I was wrong. They did an amazing job, and you have a beautiful singing voice. Uh, well, I sang better than I expected, and the person, one of the people on the panel, said, "Actually, he's got a surprisingly good singing voice." And I thought, <laughs> "I've always thought I did." You know, it was <laughs> nobody else did. And then when I, I, I did, always thought so. I was given the honour of doing your only exit interview. When you left, oh, that's right. Uh, you government. Did. I gave you the exclusive. The exclusive, the scoop. I got stuck in the lifts. <laughs> yes, that's right. I got stuck <laughs> in the lifts on the way up, and then uh, we we thought it'd be fun to have a, a mini choir come and sing. That's right, Fernando, Fernando. to you. Uh, how was that moment for you? It was awkward, actually. <laughs> Don't you think that was awkward? It was awkward. It's like getting a lap dance. You didn't know quite where to look. <laughs> exactly. I've never had a lap dance, though. Well, have you had a lap dance? I have. Is that right? Yeah, what, I have. In Australia or the Philippines? In Australia. In fact, we did an episode of uh, It's a Date with myself and Lisa McHugh, which is now spun off to How to Stay Married. And um, the episode of It's a Date featured a scene where Lisa and myself, you later find out that we're a married couple, but we go to a, uh, a strip club. Wow. And that was based on a night that my wife and I had before we were married. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I was always terrified of going to a strip club because as a politician, yes. I got elected so early at 25, I was always frightened that if I went to a strip club, there'd be CCTV camera footage. Well, Kevin Rudd got elected off the back of going to and a strip club. And of course, it, it humanised him. <laughs> Yes. Because everyone yes. thought he was such a goober yeah. until he'd been to the strip club. Although I think a lot of goobers do go to strip clubs, don't they? Uh, I, I, it was pretty full of goobers when but I was there. I'm still there. yet to go to a strip club, but now that I've retired, maybe I should give it a run. The night's still young. Give it a burl. Yeah. <laughs> now listen, we have to t- stop talking about me. This isn't about me, it's okay. about you. Sorry. So you once told me a long time ago that you started writing books, children's books yes. when you were a child yes, and selling them to your friends. Mm. Well, not selling them to my friends, but I, w- I would read them out in class. Uh, I, w- I would write them. The teachers would type them out for me and I would do like all the illustrations and, uh, you know, get uh, a couple of bits of cardboard and, and do the front cover and staple them together and, and, the then, and then read them, read them in front of the class. And I had a, a publishing company called Better Books. That was your publishing company? Yes. Because you're an entrepreneur. Entrepreneur. And uh, each each of the books had the Better Books logo on it. And there was always a bit of a buzz when a new Better Book came out. Is that right? There was such titles as Indiana Hallier and the Rackers of the Lost Park. Rackers is a made-up word. I probably overstretched. <laughs> Rackers. Uh, yeah. I overstretched on the, the, on the parody. the capital of the... Uh, uh, Islamic State and the Levant in the, I the was, Middle East. I was ahead of my time. You were. And, and we really explored that as a theme. Did you? In that, in that story. Islamic um, terrorism. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that was that must have been a real winner. It was underlining. You, you had to, you know, you, know, you had, had to read between the lines. Read between the lines. Mm. Uh, meet a sports star. And your mother was good too about these books? 
Mother she was, was, very, she uh, was a generous critic? Uh, yes, yes, they're very supportive parents. Is that company still going? No, it folded <laughs> after <laughs> the, the final book. Uh, I was about nine. The final book, Buried Alive. Is that uh, what it was called? Yes. Buried Alive. It's crazy. You've got a fabulous memory. It was about a boy. Well, cause I did a show actually at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival uh, last year where I read the books out. And it was, it was, oh, yes, I remember uh, you telling it, me that. It was that, such actually. a nice, it was a, and I want to do the show again and I want to take it around Australia. I did, I did it at the Adelaide Fringe as well, and I read these books out. And it was, it was lovely. So kids could come along, families could come along, and it was just encouraging kids to, you know, everyone to write. In fact, my, my dad, after he saw the show, said, You know what? I've always wanted to write about my life. And this is exactly what he said. He goes, I always thought people would think I was up myself. And I said, Yeah, but that's, that's the thing. You just write for yourself. Well, I wrote a book. You, you know, did. A letter about, to my about children. Your, 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 your grandfather, wasn't and it? About my dad and about me. Right. For my children. Yes. And people thought I was a bit up myself for writing a book basically about myself. But that's you know, it, if that's... I didn't write a book about myself, nobody, who was going nobody to? Else going to. Nobody, nobody going else is going to. Nobody was going to. So I thought, it's not <laughs> I'm going to do it myself. Well, I've been waiting long enough for this. Yeah, this is an achievement. You would have been proud of yourself. I was very happy. So, you know, there's certain firsts yep. in show business. Yep. You know, Liberace put the candelabra on the piano. Wow. Little words out of my mouth. <laughs> looked straight down. <laughs> he was the first person to look straight down the barrel, as you know. Mm, yeah, well, yeah, uh, yeah. He didn't know that? No, I didn't know that. Well, he did. Of course, one of the great firsts, Calvin Klein on underpants. Mm. That was the, He was the first person to write his name on a pair of underpants as yeah. well. Well, mums have been doing it for years, but... Yeah, they have, yeah. of course. Christopher Pan, the back of my underpants. <laughs> yeah, I do remember yeah, that because yeah. it's just a long name. They used to have those machines. Remember those machines that yeah. used to make? Because yeah. mine was really long and all my brothers and sisters have got long names too. Remington, Nicholas, Alexander, Samantha and me. So my mother used to be sitting there with these things clicking out. Is, is it Remington Pine? Remington Pine, yes. My father's name is Remington Pine too. Sounds like a spy. That's a great name. Remington Pine, like Bond villain, exactly. Yeah. So Remington Pine, my nephew's Remington Remington is my son's middle name. It's a big family name. Fantastic. Mm. Anyway, that was tangential. But you, your first was, of course, the, the green and gold tracksuit. Right, yes. Don't you think? You I'm were the first person to introduce the green and gold tracksuit to the news. It's maybe to the news. Mm. Maybe to the – I think, you know, I can't take – I mean, obviously in the sporting arena – uh, it's been used before. Maybe I was was I the first one to wear it in Parliament House. You took it out of the sporting arena, yeah, and you brought it into the mainstream. What I, I it, it's always used for sport, but I thought I will wear the green and gold tracksuit when I feel like I'm doing something for the country, <laughs> right, like the air warfare destroyers, like the, the destroyers. You, you took me on the uh, air warfare in, destroyers in, 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 uh, in South Australia. That's right. You wore the trackie that day. I wore the trackie that day because I wanted, you know, I was I was there for business. Well, that obviously humanizes you and. Brings the story into people's living rooms. It does, it does, but it puts me. It makes me put my game face on, <laughs> and I'm going there to do a job to show Australia where we're spending this money, the taxpayers' money, right of it. on these uh, billions of nine billion dollar program. I got to sit in the seats. I got to sit at the tape deck. That was impressive. <laughs> right, the tape deck. Yeah. Had yes, all the reverse, something, everything. Um, some things don't change. And I wore it for the federal. Uh, it started, I think, with the federal budget lockouts, which you were never there. No, because I'm not. I wasn't you, a finance you, minister. Yeah, you, were, you, you didn't have to be there. I was the defence minister. I still thought you may have, as a, you, to get behind the team, that you may have made an appearance. I was down in the chamber, keeping the whole show on the road. But I've got, a, I've got something to reveal to you about tracksuits. Okay. I have a tracksuit. I don't believe you. I, I have recently acquired a 1981 Calvin Klein reproduction tracksuit. <laughs> 
Did you buy this on eBay? They are available. Um, It was given to me and it's fabulously bad. It's got the fabulous coloured stripes from the wrist right up to the shoulders, across the shoulders to the neck. It's that light grey, hideous light grey colour. Calvin Klein. Where do you wear this? Well, I wear it to humiliate my children, so... When my daughter came back from um, <laughs> overseas recently, she was having some girlfriends over to have a, you know, bring back drinks sort of thing. And I walked out in my Calvin Klein reproduction <laughs> 1981 tracksuit and a pair of Ugg boots. <laughs> Calvin said, what do you think you're doing? I said, well, I'm relaxing at home. You know, it's my house. And she said, well, Eleanor's having some friends over. I said, they won't mind. I love this tracksuit. <laughs> <laughs> Eleanor was 19, so she had a bit of a throwdown. Now, we better talk about something more serious, I guess. Comedy. Mm. How do you make it pay? Because it's bloody hard. It's funny, it? when I was backstage, uh, I started in 1996 at the ESPY in St Kilda, um, which was a very popular place uh, for comedians to start in Melbourne around that time. And I remember I'd done a handful of gigs and, you know, I think like a lot of comedians do in those stages, you get ahead of yourself. Did you doubt yourself all the time? No. Did you think this isn't going to be funny? No, I, I doubted myself. My first gig was good. My second gig was better. And then my third gig was terrible. Oh, no. And that was that was like having like a broken heart. That was right. like seriously. And my That's my, like the comedian in fame. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you yes. Remember? I'm so glad you made that comparison. <laughs> It was absolute disaster. I mean, you, you got to it before I did. Um, <laughs> it was a so, wonderful song, though. It was a wonderful song. Are you, can you play it? No, you can't play it. Um, my, my sister had uh, brought along her new boyfriend, and I hadn't met him mm. to watch. He, oh, my, my brother's doing comedy. He's just, he's, he said he's and going really well. And crashed and burned. And I crashed and burned. I had no – my arsenal <laughs> no. wasn't big enough. You know, I didn't have oh, – because I tried to do some audience uh, audience work. So oh, I said to dear. the person in the front row, where, uh, where are you from? And they said, Craigieburn. I had no idea where Craigieburn was. <laughs> what do you do for a living? Uh, I'm a carpenter. I had nothing about carpentry. Oh, um, it was just, and you felt yourself get really hot. <laughs> and it was just, it you was. You wanted the stage to swallow you up. And you felt the audience decide that they actually hate you. Oh, um, and you, must, you should have stormed off to your trailer. This is like at least a week before I got my first trailer. Oh, really? Uh, I've always wanted to have a trailer that I could storm off to, slam the door. Where would you go in in Parliament House? (laughs) You you, you had your own office or did you have this kind of broom closet somewhere else? No, I had – actually, I had the best office in the building because I was leader of the house. Okay. So I actually had the best office in the building. Didn't you ever come to my office? No. I had floor-to-ceiling windows, largest office, closest to the chamber. I was somebody once, you know. I was, uh, no, I'm well aware. <laughs> I'm I've just been, a I, feather dust. I've man. been on warships with you. Um, I, I went to the old Parliament House Easter last year with my family. I took the kids through and they did like an Easter egg hunt uh, where they went through room to room and they saw the old offices. It's quite a good setup there, actually. It's worth, I recommend it. It's definitely worth going to. So the third one was a disaster. The third one was a disaster. And then you came back? I came back. Got um, some new material. Yeah, you just keep, you know, you, you start with five minutes and then you try to get the ten minutes. So do you literally like turn up to the, the stage door and say to the manager, look, I've got some funny lines and I'd like to come and perform next Thursday night or something? There was a guy called Trev who used to run it. Trev was a lovely old kind of hippie stoner. I'm sure you won't mind me saying. So it's like the grand like old that. Artpre in um, Tennessee, isn't it? I'm glad. Exactly. You got, mm. to, you got to it before I did. Mm. Um, <laughs> and, and you booked in with Trev and he asked you two questions. Do you have five minutes of material and can you hold a microphone? 
And I said, <laughs> Is that right? Yes. They're, they're Have two you got questions. Five minutes of material. Five minutes of material. And can you hold and a can microphone? Do you, you know how to work a microphone? How hard is it to hold a microphone? Well, it's funny, actually, because I remember the, my memory of my first gig was I walked out. I got two things that I remember, <laughs> particularly. One, I didn't know which joke I was going to start with. I had a joke about fish and chips, and I, ha- I had a joke about phone sex. And I wasn't sure which one. I ended up choosing the fish and chip one. It was the is the right choice. It was a good joke, and I, I I did that. But it's funny. I went to the microphone. Microphones can be tricky. They can be tricky. And then I I went to get it out of the the, the microphone stand. Yes. And it wouldn't it wouldn't budge. It would not budge. So I just end up standing at the microphone, <laughs> like doing my like Stephen Wright style, just standing there at the microphone, not really moving that much, holding a bottle of water because I forgot to put it down. It was almost like an empty bottle of water. Like I had like dregs of water at the at the bottom of it, and I just was holding that and, and I, wondering I, what was going on. Now that my first gig was video you were distracting tapes. people with your bo- with your bottle of water. I was. It was bad stagecraft. That was bad stagecraft. And then I, I've seen the VHS of it because I, I know a bit about show business. Yeah. Because yeah, I've been in show business for weeks 25 now. Years. <laughs> 25 years. <laughs> 25 years. And then I watched it back, and now when I watch it back, my attempts to get that out, I thought I was really yanking it, the microphone out of the stand. <laughs> I wasn't. I, it was the most timid little attempt to get that out of the stand. But that wasn't the third disastrous one. That no, was, that was the first one. So actually, it went quite well. It went quite well. well. It went quite well. On one of the DVDs I released, uh, a show called One Hot Mess, I released... Uh, on the special features that you can see my first gig ever on the special and me watching the first gig ever. Right. It's an uncomfortable experience. But then we also recorded, the, we had the third gig, the awful gig, and we actually recorded me watching that and I, I said to him, you can't put that on it. You're aghast. It's too uncomfortable. I it's- have a terrible microphone story which brings together old people, deafness, nursing homes and a microphone. Together at last. Together at last. Because you know that situation, well, you, perhaps you don't, but in that situation where you're like opening a new aged care facility, like when oh, I was, no, it I was happens the minister, all the time. <laughs> I was the Minister for Aging in the golden period of the Howard era, which was 2007. Talk about tracksuits. And exactly. Mm. I had to open a nursing home and they had got one of the lovely residents to organise the sound system who was very deaf. Mm. And I went to the microphone, to the podium, strangest choice. and there were the two little microphones that come up from the side of the podium. Yep. And as soon as I started speaking, there was a very high-pitched squealing <laughs> noise. And I kind of pushed them away and started speaking again. It happened again. I brought them forward. And my speech was a disaster by this stage because I'm starting <laughs> off saying, you know, Mr. President and ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be here and acknowledge my parliamentary colleagues. It's all fiasco. So then I started getting extremely upset, like, you know, when you get, when you get hot on the stage. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, can anybody else hear this noise? Can anybody else hear this noise? <laughs> and uh, my staff are starting to panic because they could see that I was breaking up. <laughs> coming into the trajectory. So I pushed them away and the man who was the old man who was doing the microphones, he stormed out. Oh, the deaf guy. The deaf guy stormed (laughs) out and went back to his room. He walked off. He went back to his trailer. Because you know what? That would have meant so much. I know. He he would have had weeks of thinking about that. He had one job. He only had one job and he'd been obviously working on it for weeks. Oh, no. And I kind of... rejected the whole thing. (laughs) Anyway, then I got through my speech, which was broken already, and (laughs) then I had to go away, 
And then I got a phone call from the nursing home saying, Mr. whatever his name is. He passed away. No, no, he's deeply, (laughs) deeply upset about the way you treated him at the nursing home. I said, what? I said, the microphones were a disaster. (laughs) And they said, no, this man's like 85 years old and he he worked in the war on transistor radios or something, so he's kind of like an expert. I said, well, I can tell you he's not an expert. (laughs) (laughs) I had to go back to the nursing home visit this man and apologise to him for him stuffing up my microphones. <laughs> Otherwise, it was going to become one of those ongoing sort of disastrous stories which would have leaked out and made me look like a really nasty piece of work. And if he's so listen- microphones can be tricky. And if he's listening now, we apologise again. Well, that was years ago. Do you think he's still alive? <laughs> well, I mean... Because it was... A, it how was long 12, ago? Was it how old era, was 12 it? years ago. 12 years ago. Yeah. He'd mean, be close to 100 by now. He might not be listening. He wouldn't know how to download the he podcast. He might be living in order to spite me. <laughs> I'm waiting. Don't, don't do the eulogy at his funeral, I'm okay? The, the microphones may not work. <laughs> waiting for his political career to come crashing down, mm. and I'll be there to wave him goodbye. <laughs> so, comedy is obviously your daily fare. Mm. And is it a big thrill? Do you get a big thrill out of making people laugh, or is it all about you, you and the rhinestone cowboy with the lights shining on you on stage? <laughs> I I love the challenge of it. I love the challenge of performing live on TV each night and not, you know, having a new set of stories to work with and... and um, on the project. On the project. Mm. And I also enjoy the challenge of stand-up comedy when you... Uh, people often say, is it hard being a comedian? And it's not. It's God, hard to it start. Hard. It's hard to start. Mm. And well, I think Start back, on the stage at that start, point? Yeah, like going back to that first gig right. and uh, working up your stage time. And I, I think that takes... When I think about it with me, I, I think, oh, well, you know, there's nothing special about it. But when I think about other people doing it, I can see how it takes some bravery to do that. You must be the envy of most of the comedians in Melbourne because a lot of them would be struggling to make a living, wouldn't they? Oh, there's money. Listen, there's money to be made. And is there? I, I wanted to say this earlier, actually, and you know, we got sidetracked, but I remember after a few gigs being backstage at the ESPY and thinking I knew everything about comedy and I'd done like six or seven gigs. And saying to somebody who was about to do their first gig, I said to them, you, you can't make money from comedy because that's just what I, you know, I'd gleaned. That's what I've always thought. Yeah. And I remember Andrew Goodwin, who's a really good comic, and he said to me, what are you talking about? You, you can absolutely make money out of comedy. And I felt like a, a dickhead because I was like, okay, what am I doing? I'm talking like I know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> How old were you then? Uh, oh, 20. Well, I started when I was 21. Right. So, yes, you didn't know any idea what you were talking no, about. No, I was, I was, I was silly and, and, and uh, running, my, running off my mouth. But um, you can. I mean, you can make money just doing live comedy, um, let alone you know, when you add that's amazing. I find that amazing that people pay to come and listen to people like talk. So mm. I've done a couple of shows in the festival with Annabelle Crabb. Yes. And it always amazes me that we fill the theatre because I think who would want to come and listen to me talking with Annabelle Crabb? But people do, don't they? They do. They're and, fascinated and, to find out what people what makes people tick. Yeah, I never take it for granted if I'm... Say so, so the Adelaide Fringe, and it's close to your Because I made heart. Annabelle Crabb famous because of those shows. It was me. Of course. Yeah. Elevated. Tell us why. Because she was nobody before me. You did the first 
kitchen cabinet you were telling I me off I did actually do the first kitchen cabinet. I, I like how you, you you certainly know the milestones and your achievements. <laughs> you have them I ready have to, to go. Because nobody else tells me what they first are. First politician to co-host a project. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know that. Didn't I, you? No, I wasn't aware of that. Is that right? Because I was the envy of all my colleagues because they said, you were on the whole hour. I said, well, I was. Mm. And I said, I'm doing it again too in Adelaide. <laughs> <laughs> that was a fun one. That was a fun one. We got distracted. What were we talking about? Yes. Oh, people coming to the um, to yeah, actually pay to hear. I, ne- I never take it for granted uh, when I look out and I see, or I, I'm told that the show sold out tonight. Like that, it still amazes me. Mm. When you've got so much choice in, in festivals like the Adelaide Fringe or the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, that, you know, it could be anything. In Melbourne, it might be a 1,000. In, in, in Adelaide, it might be anywhere between, you know, 400 and 600 people a and night. People could stay home. Yeah, they could stay home. they want to go out. There's so many things, so much to do at home. that mm. you got, you got Netflix is basically a whole mm. universe, every it movie that's ever existed. destroyed live theatre. No. Well, there's the, there's the experience that you have, uh, whether it's theatre or comedy, that is you cannot get anywhere else. And it's, 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 kind, of, it's kind of magical. And even though... You'll do the show the next night and it'll be roughly the same. There's something about each night is different enough and you're seeing something happening in front of you. It's very exciting. I always wanted to win an Academy Award. What uh, what film <laughs> was would my, you have loved to have been in? That was my great dream as a child. Okay, if you could cast yourself in any film. I had a film name. Yeah, a fictitious film. A fictitious what film. What was it called? It was called Sadness in Our Lives. <laughs> it's true. And it was going to... I mean, it's an awful name. It's an awful name. <laughs> I mean... And there are, I don't even remember the other stars, but when they introduced the film, it was going to be introducing Christopher Pine. Because do you remember in the old yes. movies they yeah. used to have, you know... Even Crocodile Basil, Dundee was introducing Linda Kozlowski. That's right. Basil Rathbone or, you know, whatever. Of course. And then that, Basil, Rathbone. Basil Rathbone. Then they'd have introducing... How, how, how old are you? <laughs> introducing Linda Kozlowski. Yeah. Not that those two performed together in the same movie. No, sadly, no. Uh, Rathbone and Kozlowski never actually eras. worked together. But I had this uh, sadness in our lives and introducing Christopher Pine. I can't even remember what the libretto was. And once I was in the Gold Coast and I was at a... Th- a comedy theatre thing that had done a lot of the work for Babe, you know, animation. And I was mid, mid-speech and I saw at the end of their boardroom table their Academy Award. You saw it? In a, in a box. And I stopped and said, I stopped. I couldn't speak. And I said, I always wanted to win an Academy Award. <laughs> as though, for sadness in as my life. As though they'd stolen my <laughs> Academy Award. So what... What was the? What it was, was really hard for me to go on at that point. I was kind of almost overtaken with emotion. Was there anything more than a title? Did you have a? a no, a, I didn't have anything else. Synopsis. I'd introduce in Christopher Pine, sadness in our lives. What does that mean? What does that mean? It was sadness. <laughs> like you could you could call a movie anything. Sadness in our life. I don't know why, where it came from. I don't know what it was all about. A sad part inside of you. I don't know what it was. I was I was only that being little introduced. boy who wanted to be loved. I wasn't the main actor. I was just being introduced. It didn't go anywhere. I'm just surprised you didn't have like a sentence to describe. Well, it's a good question, actually. I mean, it's a what? very good question. What was the movie going was to be the genre? about? What was, what the, was genre? the genre? Well, it was at the same time as a movie that I'd seen called I Want to Live. Do you remember this? No. It had a very famous woman in it who um, 
I think she won an award for it, and it was about a woman on death row. And the phone would keep ringing, and the phone, which was the governor ringing, the phone was right up in the front of the screen. Like, all you could see was the phone and her deep in the back, waiting behind a glass screen for the governor to give her a reprieve. And I Want to Live was the motivation for sadness in our lives. See? Well, it's, 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 so when you, it's when a when you beautiful ex- insight. When you explain it, it works. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean I'm not sure if Netflix is picking that up and offering you a deal. I think deal. Southern Cross Oz Stereo right now is thinking about well, that as a movie if you, or if, a series. If you can get a script together, I'll come back and you know, as a radio play. Oh, yeah. As uh, record, a radio play. Record some sadness Now, look, we've got to stop talking about things that aren't relevant to this dis- discussion. Um, <laughs> so does politics exasperate you as a... As a I can. It's been pretty depressing. The last 10 years. Yep. I think so. All I the constant so. churn. Well, because I thought Malcolm was there, the great hope, because I thought he was somewhere in the middle. It was Malcolm in the middle, and um, <laughs> and and when politics gets in the way of politics, and all gets in the way of leading, and it, you know, did with the Labor Party as well, obviously. Yeah. Um, it's it, it, it's it's frustrating it's and, been and an exa- exasperating time for the public too. And and, and all the, when it becomes about politicians, it's like the anyone who follows football when when the football journalists become the stories. It's like we, it's not what we want. It's it, when politicians become the story, whether it's the citizenship stuff or Barry O'Farrell accepting a bottle of wine. It's like. Whoa, whoa. What's this, re- you know? But uh, I think the public do see through that a bit, don't they? I mean, the result of the federal election this year, without getting too political about it on our podcast, the I mean, most people thought there was no possibility that the coalition could win after all of the mess of the last uh, 12 months in particular. Yep. And yet somehow the Australian public saw through all that and actually made a decision based on what they thought was important, you know, whether it was tax or whether it was national security or leadership, but they didn't punish the coalition for that, but hopefully now, you know, we've settled down and we've changed the rules on both parties so they yeah. can't change the leader and people vote for the person who they actually end up getting. Which is which is great. That, that, that is a step in the right direction. Do you think we should get rid of polling, though? Yes. No it's polls. A waste of money. It's a waste of money and time. Mm. Because I mean, it, And then you don't have the uh, government reacting well, the, to this. The, but you can still, you, you'll still do internal polling, obviously. Sure. My colleagues react far too much to the polls. I mean... Mm. On the news poll, we couldn't have possibly won the federal election. We hadn't led in, what, four years or something. Yeah. And yet we won, the, we won two elections in those four years yeah. you know, when it actually counted. Yeah. So politics can be exasperating. I'm sure it's exasperating for you as an interviewer because you'd have a conversation with people off camera where they say a whole lot of things. Oh, <laughs> I'm looking at a person right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you get them on camera and uh, they go back into that politician's mode. Does that really... Uh, annoy the hell out of you? Uh, it can. We understand it. We, we don't like it, but we uh, you know, we understand that's part of the game. And sometimes the information that you, you do glean off, off camera is, is still useful. But, it, 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 yeah, it is, it is frustrating. It's interesting when people come out of politics. Well, I always find Peter Garrett's an interesting case study. You know, one of the most popular, one of the most popular, beloved, you know, uh, singers and entertainers. Always and, uncomfortable. And so, tr- and so, so trusted. And then when he went into politics, which we all kind of thought, you know, as oils fans, yeah, he's going to fix the system. <laughs> and he, like, there's no fixing the system. Well, he was always very uncomfortable in politics. Yeah. So sometimes I think you're better off, not everyone, but better off outside of politics, and you can do more more good. Outside of politics. So I think I was his shadow minister for a while and he was the minister and he was, um, 
he's a lovely guy and he was always a kind of a bit surprised that there was politics in politics. You know, it was like, <laughs> aren't we supposed to be getting elected and just getting on and fixing things and so on? But, of course, you can't actually get to do that unless you do the politics as well. Yeah. And I think he always found it rather sort of sort of infantile. You know, he always <laughs> kind of conveyed that sense of, you know, but you're such a nice bloke. Why are you now saying these bizarre things about, you know, the yeah, government's yeah. policies? Yeah. It, it is exasperating. But no politics for you. You don't have any plans to ever no, end God the no. politics? God, no. So what are you going to do? You're going to stay on the project for till you're old and grey or do you have plans oh, post I, the project? I imagine that uh, eventually Channel 10 will probably tap me on the shoulder and say, Pete, you're... Um, you we'll know, bone you. Yeah, you, you, you know, we want to go younger. Tommy Little, Tommy Little needs the job. <laughs> so... I'm always assuming I'm going to be boned by the by the media, actually. Yeah, well, I mean, n- nothing lasts forever. I mean, I've been very lucky. I've been involved with three 10-year shows with Rove wow. Live before the game and um, and, and the project. Um, so yeah, I've had a, a really good run. I want to do more scripted stuff, How to Stay Married. We're uh, shooting the second series uh, now. Hopefully that, you know, who knows what goes on there. Maybe another film. Um, I'm enjoying the kids' books and the Frankie Fish uh, series. Um, you know, I, I would like to be able to, you know, work on work-life balance. You know, the idea of spending some time overseas and writing with my wife is a nice idea. How old idea. are your children now? 17. Wow. 14 and 11. Yeah, so mine are 11 to 19. 11, 19, yeah. 11 to 19. 11, 11 to, I was going to say this more. 11, 17 and two 19-year-olds. Okay, similar. No, but that's one of the reasons I got out of politics because I thought, well, um, 26 years is a long time and I thought if I don't get out now, then I'll probably never get out and if I get out now, then, you know, I can start being a parent, a mm. proper parent mm. for the next sort of 20 years hopefully because you never stop parenting your children. No. I feel when I uh, – when the – Two older boys were a bit younger. I used to be home when I got home from school before I joined the project. And we used to kick the footy light in the backyard yeah. and, and do all that. And then I joined the project like six years ago. Oscar's, you know, just turned 11. I, I've had less of that backyard cricket time, cricket footy time uh, with him. I, I feel guilty about that. That's, that's the biggest thing I think Carrie and myself and, and, and Waleed struggle with is the idea that we're not home at dinner time with Are the kids. Are you Catholic? Yes. So you have Catholic guilt as well as uh, yes, as, guilt. as as father guilt uh, as a yes. parent. Yes, yes. Well, it's I'm all the same. it's all lumped in. It's it's actually easy having Catholic guilt because you just feel guilty about everything all the time. Yeah, so it's just and, nice, know, consistent. You know, there's no kind of you know, should I be guilty about this? Should I yeah. forget about it? no? So of course, you should be. About, yeah. exactly. It's a very easy decision. <laughs> you should be guilty all the time just for existing. So the project sounds like it's going to keep going for you for quite a while. I hope so. I'm certainly yeah. uh, I'm contracted for another year and. And you use mm. your children a bit in the project yes, and your humour, not use them in an unpleasant way, but you find that they're, they're good copy for funny stories. And st- uh, yeah, it's funny. I think a lot of... Because com- I always have with well, my children. I'm a comedian who talks about my real life and I think mm. if you're that kind of comedian and you have kids, you are, it's ridiculous not to not mind them for material but not have them reflected in what you're talking about. Because that's they're the biggest thing in my I life. I don't know how you'd leave them out. Well, exactly. You because just, half it, the terrible things that happened to you happened to you because you're a half parent. Half the terrible things, half the great things, half the great things. You know, it, exactly. it's just it's just for me to ignore they, they that part of my life that. would be uh, would be uh, untrue. Um, they no, no, they're good. Occasionally, some things have come up. There's one thing with my younger son uh, that he said I'd rather not 
speak about. <laughs> I told him. I, I told him. Quite Do you want openly. to speak about that I, now? No, uh, no. I, I won't say what. I, I won't say what. It is. It's it's quite a strange thing. Like it's something I would never have thought he would be embarrassed uh, about. embarrassed about. But he just. He just was a little bit, and so I I still do the routine. I did a school gig recently, and I made sure I didn't do do it at the, the his school <laughs> fundraising gig because I didn't want parents going home and saying to their kids, "Oh, Oscar did this." So yeah, I'm I'm, I'm mindful. I, I certainly don't want to embarrass. Well, imba- I'm okay about embarrassing them. I just don't want to put them in a situation where they have to carried around with them. I think part of our role in life is about embarrassing our children. Exactly. I just wrote a column about sharing a car with your teenage children because when I decided to, when I got out of Pollux, I decided to not buy a new car but to share with my three teenagers, mm. which has been an absolute unmitigated disaster. <laughs> <laughs> my 17-year-old, he got his learners on a Thursday, his driver's license on a Thursday. Yep. And by the following Thursday, he had had three crashes. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And I had taken it to the crash repairer um, before he got his license and said, I'd like this to be fixed, stare, Alistair, stare, um, because I can't have the embarrassment of this terrible vehicle being in my driveway. (laughs) And stare said, no, no, don't do that, because he's a new driver. It's going to be a disaster. (laughs) I said, no, 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 it's impossible. People will start complaining, you know. So he fixed it for $3,000, and then within a week... I had to drive it back to stair. I had to cut a piece off it, actually, so that I could get it back to stair <laughs> and leave it there. And I didn't even see him. I just sent him a text message saying, you were right, you were right. <laughs> Did, does the youngster have to fork out or...? Well, he's still at school. Right. He hasn't got a lot of money. No. Anyway, I'm having that thing. But I've, I've, I've come up with a fail-safe solution to sharing your car with your teenage children. I'm buying a manual. You what? I'm buying a manual. You're buying a manual. Because they can't drive manuals. <laughs> Generation Y can't drive manuals. Yeah, right. So they, they'll get in the car. Usually you're buying a manual like how to drive. <laughs> <laughs> like a, a book. I'm going to write a manual. <laughs> so I got sick of putting my hand, you know, in the receptacle on a car door and getting mandarin peel on a app <laughs> and, or eyeliner that hadn't been put away in a... Eyeliner McDonald's thing. fries under Although, the seat. Well, I sat down on fries and I my suit was got oil on it or soiled from the McDonald's fries and I had to go and change it <laughs> and get it dry clean. And, and Karen says, you lasted nine and a half weeks. That's what it's called, nine and a half weeks. It's as long as I last. Not the Mickey Rourke movie, nine and a half weeks. Well, with Kim, Basinger. Kim Basinger, yeah. Mm, that was a very raunchy movie. It was, it was. No, nine and a half weeks for me was how long I lasted cheering my car with my teenage <laughs> children. And I now bought a manual, which I thought was a brilliant that's a good, uh, the, the first time I drove a manual, because I learned in an automatic, I had one lesson in a, in a manual, I thought, nah, I'm, I'm, I'll just drive automatic cars, I don't need to drive a manual. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I learned in, the, in an automatic, and then I got my license in an automatic, I, I, I bought an automatic. Uh, so the first time I actually drove a manual car, outside of that one lesson that I had, was at the Celebrity Grand Prix. Oh, hell. Yeah. <laughs> that was the first time. Yeah, that was a, a baptism Shivers. of fire. And I burnt through the clutch. And, oh, and they no. actually, after the first day, they actually showed, they, they basically got the clutch and they showed it to the class. God, and they said, this, this is, is what, this is what happens do. when you ride the clutch too much. We won't say who it is. And I put my hand up and said, it was me. It was me. <laughs> um, 
And then we had one uh, practice run on one of the days at the actual track. It was one of the best days. I don't think they do They're it anymore. They're so much fun, those sort of celebrity races. Yeah, oh, and I was thinking like Pat Rafter. Because it doesn't matter if you're no good. No, and I wasn't. And they said to me, I did it twice, once as myself, and that was that time. And then I did a strawny. And then they said to me uh, after a strawny one, and I was, I again was burning through the clutch. And they said, listen, we don't know if you're, you're trying to be funny. Um, (laughs) and I said said, I'm not I'm actually just out there and I'm just driving as best as I can and they said okay are you trying to win it and I was like well I'm just trying to drive as best as I can they said don't just hang at the back yeah, and run. just get through the race. Just get through the just race. Get through the race. Don't ruin another one of our said, cars. We want, we want you to be involved. You can't. I blew up a Volkswagen once. A Volkswagen bug. My first car was a bug. How'd you do that? There was a light on the dashboard for a long period of time, <laughs> and then nobody pays attention to the lights. I know. And uh, I was like, I thought, well, you know, I don't know what that is. Maybe something to do with the lights or something. Mm. I don't know. Anyway, so I ignored it for weeks. And then I was in the country and I was driving along a dirt road with Anne-Marie Cattrall. Shout out to Anne-Marie Cattrall. And uh, the car stopped, sort of came to a shuddering halt. And mm. we both got out and went to the back and I lifted up the <laughs> back of the Volkswagen. because That's where the motor is, of course. Yeah. And then it exploded and burst into flames. <laughs> and literally, and we just, all we had was a bottle of Coke. So we ran down the road. <laughs> I was about 18. We rang down the road because we thought the whole car was going to explode. <laughs> because there was that movie. Do you remember that movie about what? the car exploding in the desert? What? No, what? With Gulpalil or something in it? Cars explode in movies all the time. I know. The one movie you're talking and I, about. And we ran, then Anne-Marie said, my handbag's still in the car. I said, so what? She said, well, can you go back and get it for me? I said, Anne-Marie, the car might explode at any moment. Did you have to do a slow motion dive away from the exploding car? It eventually burnt itself out and I rang my father, went to a local, um, actually had to knock on a farmhouse door, literally, because there was no mobiles in those days. And he said, how did that happen? I said, I don't know. He said, was there any warning? I said, maybe. (laughs) He said, there was a light on the dash for a long time. Wow. He said, maybe the car had no oil in it. Cars are not my strong suit. No, they're not my strong suit either. I used to run out of petrol. I used to drive a Datsun 120Y and... um, Oh, the old 120, what colour was it? uh, Blue, like a light blue. Oh, Um, nice. And I remember... It's like my track suit. There was one... <laughs> there was one... Special colours. There was one time, we had, I just got my licence, and we'd read in the local paper that there was a place, a cafe open called McTitt's. <laughs> was and, Kevin Rudd there? <laughs> Kevin Rudd wasn't there, sadly. Um, and we'd heard that it was like a milk bar, but with topless wow. people serving. So we thought, as as eighteen year olds, we thought we need we need to get down there to, to check out if this is true. And it was in Thomastown, um, like in the north of uh, north, northern suburbs of Victoria. So we drove. I drove there. I drove. I drove my mates in there. My Datsun one twenty Y, and we ran out of petrol on the way. Oh, no. So we ended up having to push the Datsun one twenty Y to McTitts. <laughs> And we eventually got out of the car. We're all like sweating. With okay, it's gonna be worth it. We're gonna go. We're going to make tits. And we walked in there, and there's this a fat bloke in a, metal, a black Metallica t-shirt. Oh no! And like, where were the staff? The, the staff went. I don't know. They weren't there. Let the side We've been down. sold a lemon. Like, and there's there's like four of us all sweating, going, oh, "This is not what we come for." And then I like, goes, "Got out of business." So we had to buy a couple of dim sims just to just to you know. 
Make up the, for it. Yeah, well, just keep face. Yeah. <laughs> We've got to wrap up. <laughs> We've got to wrap up. You want to move away from the McTit story? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I want to know, did you want to rule the world? Yes. Yeah. It didn't happen. No. I'm just ruling the airwaves. Did you, when you joined uh, Parliament at the 25? Yep. We showed the vision, the young Christopher You're Pine. You're not supposed to be interviewing me. What's going on? Did you? This has gone off the rails. Did you envision <laughs> being Prime Minister one day? Yes, I did. Mm. Mm. And when did you think that wasn't going to happen? When did you go, okay, cues um, in Iraq? I worked late, out late, late that last it was, year? No, I worked out that it was really hard for a South Australian to be the Prime Minister because there aren't enough seats in South Australia. Is that right? And I worked out that it was really hard for a obvious smaller Liberal to lead the party, unless they were a real star like Malcolm Turnbull. But you're a star. <laughs> Malcolm is a, a big star. I'm just a, mm. If there was a star on the pavement, I'd be a little star. You'd <laughs> <laughs> be a whole paver. Well, you're a big star well, now. I'm, You've got your own podcast. On that note, mm. thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Pine Time was presented by me, Christopher Pine. Audio production by Darcy Thompson, produced by Matt Dwyer and the ever-patient executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.